Jesus said, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. That quote comes from Luke chapter 9. So what does it mean to deny yourself? Does it mean simply to be unselfish? Is there a difference between unselfish and selflessness? How well are you doing to daily honor Jesus' command to deny yourself? Let's talk about the challenge to deny oneself on today's episode of Craving Answers, Craving God. I'm Chuck Rathert with Aaron Miller. Aaron is the pastor of St. James Lutheran Church in Glen Carbon, Illinois. Aaron, in a recent sermon, you referenced selflessness. It's not a word we use often. So what does the word selflessness mean to you? Basically, putting other people before we put ourselves. Put, uh, ourselves, Putting other people before I put myself. So it's one of those qualities that everybody admires. There's not a single person who doesn't admire others who make more of other people than they do themselves. But it's something that's so hard to find, either other people doing it or definitely hard to find in my own behavior. Well, let's let's start uh, from your from my own personal experience. It seems to me that in my life, from teenager to senior citizen, that the character of our culture has devolved. I know it's not the first time in human history that's happened, but in in my life experience, it seemed to me that we are much more selfish these days than in the past. Do you agree? What do you think? Yeah, in the West, uh, this is part of the dramatic shift between uh, uh, a modern culture and uh, what some people call postmodern culture. It, it used to be, you think about uh, the book Tom Brokaw wrote several years ago about my grandfather's generation, the greatest generation. Um, my grandfather fought in the Second World War, and he, he had no qualms about that. He was he did not want to lose his life, of course, and but he, he didn't have any sort of philosophical misgivings about going halfway across the world and uh, fighting for something that he believed was right. But my grandfather, like um, everybody else in his generation, almost all, everybody else in his generation, had a, a, a philosophical principle that he believed was more important than himself. And um, that pretty much characterized the West for 1,500 years, 1,600 years, longer than that even. Uh, but in the middle of the uh, 20th century, that went away. And there are various reasons for that. And I'm teaching a class at my church on this right now, but um, try to make this as quick as possible. And we've talked about this in here before, too. There are very re- various reasons why this would be the case. Um, a-, a lack of belief in science anymore, uh, what Nietzsche called the death of God, a lack of belief in God, um, the the rise of individualism, uh, the rise of anti-authoritarianism. Uh, you can see this in uh, movies and in art and in the way politicians talk and the way salespeople talk. You can see this in personal behavior. And again, I'll just point you back to, and I don't have the episode numbers in mind here, but I, I want to say pretty close to where we started. Uh, if you go back to the early episodes, you can find some episodes on uh, postmodernism. 
but I, just for our purposes right now, I can say this, is that there's no more God in the middle of the room in our culture that people agree is the foundational principle that everybody should be united in supporting, whether that's a religious God or the God of progress, the God of science, the God of rationalism. There is no more God in the middle of the room. And what what's happened is, is that's turned us all into miniature gods where I am the final arbiter of what's right and wrong. Um, and that's just inherently selfish. And uh, so I, I think you're right. I think that we are, at least at this in our context in America, we are definitely more selfish than we were even 50, 60 years ago. You have three kids, and they are pretty much in their formative years. They live in a world that is awash in media messages, and much of that messaging affirms everything that is selfish about us. And I'm not just talking about commercial advertising. Self-centeredness is in politics, social communication, education, sports, and on and on and on. Are you worried about your kids? Um, I, I'm not worried about my three kids. Uh, Angela and I have worked hard to point out to them what's going on in the culture. We, we, you know, we play a game in our house where you listen to advertising and you kind of suss out, like, okay, so what's the what, what's the angle of human selfishness that this advertising is preying upon to try and make money off of us? My son has gotten uh, good at this or bad at this, depending upon your circumstance, with politicians. He'll point out to me something that some politician says, and and he's kind of you know tried to strip back the facing of uh, what the politician has said. To sh- he wants to show me kind of the ugly skeleton underneath. And uh, that's pretty impressive, I think. Yeah, I, but I, anybody can do that. It's it's just a skill that you have to develop to you know to eat the fish and spit out the bones. And p- part of that too is the belief. If you believe that we're all selfish, you start looking for that. And that's why I said it's a good thing that he's that he does this. But I don't want him to be cynical. I, I don't want him to. Um, it's hard and it's hard in this culture that we're in to be in serious relationships. Part of it is that we're selfish, but part of it is that we believe everybody else is selfish. And sometimes that's just not the case. I do not want my son to be cynical about his mother's love for him. But in our culture, that's a danger. Now, I I say I'm not worried about him. I will say this. I am worried about the world he's living in. And and I hate to sound like an old man because I'm not. I'm very young. And trendy and hip, as evidenced just, by your gray beard. Yeah, just letting the listeners know <laughs> that that uh, I'm I'm totally with it. Uh, no, but uh, seriously, I am worried about um, I'm worried about the world that he's growing up in. Um, I, I, this is not the place to reflect on this. But what I've been saying about postmodernism and selfishness has something to do with the rise of violence in our culture, the willingness to take life the willingness to strike out at other people, sometimes for no reason at all except for I just want to play God for a few minutes. I I worry about them that way, that others are going to do damage to them. And all this to say, too, that I know that my kids are selfish. They come by it honestly. They've been well-trained with the example of their dad. They didn't need any training. We were were born selfish. Well, yeah, but I've I've actually... uh, I've put them to school on how to be selfish, okay. how to be a bad father and a bad husband and a, a, a bad friend. But 
So I'm, I'm not saying that they're perfect, but I'm not totally worried about them. It's the kind of thing that all of us can become. If we're more aware of our own tendency to selfishness, it becomes easier to head it off at the pass. You said something about in our culture now, uh, God is no longer in the center of the room, implying that there was a time when he was more in the center of the room yeah. than he is now. Uh, what you just did there was link us to Adam and Eve. It was the assertion by Satan that God knows that in the day you eat, you will not die, but you will be like God. And Adam and Eve wanted to be like God. And so have the rest of us ever since Adam and Eve. So selfishness is not just a quality or a characteristic, it seems to me, but it is, I think, the divining principle that sort of explains all the violence and, and sin and disruption since Adam and Eve. Is that correct? Yeah, I don't see how you get around that. It's that, that's the, that, the Bible describes this as the primal fundamental human problem is the quest for divinity, the quest to be God. Um, I, 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 I honestly don't know anybody who really disagrees with this, whether they're a religious person or an, uh, an, an atheist. Really? This, yeah. This I, desire to be I was be just divine. thinking to myself, somebody would be, well, I don't desire, think that I'm God. I don't, I don't desire to be God. Well, yeah. So, I mean, I don't mean the desire to like control the weather or things like that, but the desire to like be sovereign, the desire to control things, the belief that if everything happened the way I want it to, everything would be better. This is kind of this is at the heart of relationship failure. It's the heart of at the heart of business crime, violent crime. This desire that I want things my way, and I'm willing, and I'm willing to use my power to make that happen, even if people are in my way, or if I don't have the power to make it happen, I'm frustrated by the people that are in my way because they're in the way of my all sovereign plans. So you don't have to believe in like a, a supernatural being, but we all want to be sovereign. We all want to be in control of our circumstances. This is the quest for divine power. The quest to be like the Bible describes God as the one who, you know, God is in his heavens. The Psalms say he does what he pleases. Well, that's what I want to be. I want to be, I want to be the person who sits on my metaphorical throne and does whatever I please. Well, that's a God thing, and whether you believe God, that that personal God, the creator God of the universe exists, or whether you believe he doesn't exist, almost every reflective person that I know agrees that humans want to be like that, that what, what, what Christians call uh, God. Let me see if I can muddy the water up here a little bit. Um, I'm going to Matthew 22, uh, where Matthew writes, and this is... I, this might even be during Holy Week. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment of the law? And he, Jesus, said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And then he makes this amazing statement. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets, all of Moses, all of the prophetic writings of the Old Testament. So we're supposed to love God, which is leans in the direction of selflessness, I think. We're supposed to love our neighbor, same thing. 
But then it gets complicated when he says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, which seems to suggest, I don't know what the Greek is here, but it seems to suggest that we know how to love ourselves. We should love our neighbor as at least as much as we love ourselves. Is that what that's saying? And does that mean that you can love yourself without being selfish? Uh, sh- sure. In fact, yes. Uh, I think I'm not answering your first question, but I'm going to hit on what you just said at the end there before I forget it. This is a part of, this is one of the great discoveries of human relationship is that by loving somebody else, I love myself well. That by loving Angela, I am happier about myself. I'm happier about my circumstances when I'm loving Angela more than I'm loving myself. Happy wife, happy life. Yes, there is that saying. And it's tapping into something that's real is that the best way for me to be happy is to try to make Angela happy and not myself. And I find that when Angela's happy, I'm happy. And it's the same with my kids. It's the same with my friends. If I have a group of friends and I say, we're going to do everything I want to do, nobody else gets any say, we're going to do everything I want to do. And nobody's ever going to make me upset. Nobody's ever going to challenge me if they think I'm doing anything wrong. I'm going to end up being lonely. But if I grow, if I go into my friend group and I say, I'm going to put myself aside. I'm not going to think about myself. I'm going to think about them. I'm going to put them first. I'll actually find myself having fun, being fulfilled, being comforted, uh, developing intimate emotional connections and psychological connections with other people that are extremely healthy for my mind and for my body, my emotions. In other words, I find myself truly when I give myself up to the other people. Now, it doesn't make that's that's not intuitive because uh, you know in, in the nietzschean sense i'll be happy if i can make myself happy and what the bible says is that i'll be happy when i'm investing my life in other people so love your neighbor as yourself um yes you to- to- you totally love yourself by loving your neighbor um i think what jesus means there too is like you one of the things he means is you love yourself. You love yourself. Now, because you love yourself, use that as a barometer for how well you're doing with your neighbors. Like, when I'm hungry, I want to be fed, all right? So think about that, Aaron. That's an appropriate thing to do to care for yourself. Well, what about your kids? Same thing. When your kids are hungry and uh, for whatever reason they haven't gotten food and they're a little bit snappy about it, can you love them? Because you know how you are when you're hungry, that sort of thing. Now, what's interesting is later on in the Gospels, in the Gospel of John, Jesus ramps it up. He says, a new commandment I've given you. You know, you've heard, basically, you heard me say before, love your neighbor as yourself, but I'm going to give you a new commandment. Now I want you to love each other like I have loved you, which that's even more intense, to love others like Jesus loved me. Now, what, what does that mean? Jesus completely gave up his life for me. I mean, quite literally, he died for me. Um, that's what I'm called to do. I'm called to die for others. Hopefully not literally, but if that's the case, it needs to happen. First responders live this life. Um, to, to give up my life for my family at least means that I need to be more concerned about where they want to eat dinner tonight than I am about where I want to eat dinner. At least I need to be more concerned about the kinds of conversations they need to have 
more so than the kind of talking I want to do. And this is what Jesus is calling us to. And it, it is difficult. And um, it is radical. And then what was your first question? I'm sorry, I drifted I a little too far afield. Oh. I, I enjoyed that answer, though. I'll All say right, that. Yeah. Uh, let me ask you this, because my mind is moving forward, too. Um, in Genesis, back to Adam and Eve, we're told that once Adam and Eve had been created by God, that they were naked and not ashamed. And I suspect that uh, pastors who have taught middle schoolers about this passage, they get some snickers, they get some chuckles when they get talk about Adam and Eve being, being naked. I've wondered this, and I've never asked anybody this question, so I'm interested to see what you say. I've come to think that the reason that factoid is in Genesis is to show that Adam and Eve were so selfless or so other-focused that their nakedness did not occur to them. It was just a natural state. We can't think about nakedness like that anymore because there is so much sinfulness attached to it anymore. But do you think that's a correct assumption, that the purpose of telling us that was to show not so much about the fact that they were naked, but that they were so focused on their creator God that it was not an issue? And each other. I, yeah, I, I mean, this is excellent, and this flows out of the, the previous question and conversation that we had, Chuck. And, and what I'm about to say next is uh, PG-13. So if anybody has uh, kids that they're listening no to this with the car. No snickering, please. Yes, no snickering. Be mature. Um, people, who, people who are in healthy, thriving marriages know that this is the case, that you can return to this Garden of Eden state. That so so when you're first married and you're physically intimate, you're very aware of yourself in this. Like, am I am I ugly? Am I doing this okay? Like, is this is this okay for the other person? Over the course of time, as you're loved by your spouse, when you come together, you know, in in the marriage bed, when you come together, you don't think about yourself as much anymore. You're into the other person and what they look like and what they need. This is in a healthy marriage. And you start to lose yourself. And as a result, sex within marriage becomes better and better when you lose yourself. This is what I'm talking about. This is an ex exact illustration of the point that Jesus is making, although not about human sexuality, but on larger relational grounds in the Gospels, that you, you become more fulfilled, you become happier, whether it's with your friends or your sex life with your spouse, you become more fulfilled and happier when you are not focused on yourself, but on what the other person needs. You actually can become naked and not ashamed. Now, you can't do this in the hookup culture because you always have to perform. But in marriage, you don't have to, well, it's, it's, this is work. It takes time to get there. But you don't have to perform. You can just love the other person. And who you are and what you look like becomes way less important than who they are and what they look like and how much they enjoy receiving love and affection and comfort and closeness from you. And that's a great example. I'm glad that you thought of that, Chuck, because it flows right out of this, is that selflessness feels like a scary thing. It feels like I'm losing myself if I'm selfless, but it's actually a wonderful way to find yourself in deeper, more profound, more satisfying ways than you ever could if you were just focused on yourself. 
In the opening to this program, I referenced Jesus' call to deny oneself. He taught that meant that we should take up our cross, quote-unquote. So how does that exhortation inform this discussion we're having now? Take up your cross. Yeah, so, so when Jesus said this, this is before the crucifixion. Um, and, you know, thanks to the crucifixion, like there's crosses on top of our church buildings and on our walls, some of us who are Christians' walls, and um, people wear cross necklaces. When Jesus says this, though, the cross, no, nobody would have thought of that. None of his followers knew what that was going to look like, you know, a thousand years from then. Instead, for them, the cross was Rome's preferred method of execution for people who rebelled against the state. That was, you know, Rome would behead people. They didn't mind imprisoning people. Death by crucifixion was what Rome did to people who were seditious, to people who were trying to overthrow the government. And so when Jesus says this, what he's basically saying is, if you follow me, you're going to have to lose your life. You're going to have to be prepared to die in this mission of ours to take over the world for the gospel of Jesus, for, for the gospel of himself. And um, so, yeah, this ties into what we've been talking about. This willingness to, to give up your life is, it, it's, it, it's God's plan for how he designed us to work in the very beginning. And it's the goal he's trying to create us for. Jesus isn't threatening his disciples. He's promising them this new life. And later on, he says, if you lose your life, you'll gain it. And this is what we're talking about. If you give up your life, in other words, if you're not selfish, if you become selfless in, in a way which centers God and your friends and your family around you, you'll find your life. I'm thinking there are two ways. There's a fork in the road here, two ways that we can deal with this. Uh, one is which has been done and still done, I guess, for that matter. You could become a monk. You could be isolated. You could not talk to people. You could just battle yourself by isolating yourself. No more relationships, minimal food, all that kind of stuff. Right. Or you could take the other side of the fork in the road where rather than Restricting yourself to the nth degree, what you do is empty yourself and put God, as the two commandments we talked about right. before, put God first in your life in everything and your neighbor ahead of yourself, which is uh, more liberating, it seems to me, than just self-isolation and self-restriction. Yeah, that, that's a good point. There, there, so there's two sides to this. There's two sides to any virtue. Virtue and vice typically end up on both sides of a single coin, a specific virtue and vice. And selflessness is a negative. It's a vice. There's a positive that goes with it. And we know this from just the way God talks to us in the Bible about... about oh, let's back up a yeah, second. Selflessness is a vice? I'm sorry, selfishness. Did I say selflessness? Yes, I, I think you did. Yeah, thanks for... Okay. I meant selfishness. Thanks for checking that. So, so you know, we aren't to commit adultery. Okay, that's that's a negative. Don't commit adultery. The, the flip side of that, though, is that we are to love. You know, there, there's the, the, the sin of lust. You shouldn't lust, right? But it's not just good enough not to lust. You need to love. Stealing, don't steal. That's a negative. Protecting your neighbor's income and property is a positive. And so... Um, you know, one way you can not lust, you could try this, it's not going to work, is 
to become a monk, to cut yourself off from all human contact. But you're not going to develop the the the, the um, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Skill. The 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 equal the opposite side uh, the correlative positive of the skill of doing the virtue right so it's not just enough and, and I'll talk to people sometimes who struggle with you know with greed or, or with lust or with anger and it's always okay so you can try to stop those things those efforts will largely be unsuccessful unless you replace lust or greed or anger with love to learn to love. To be greedy, so, so uh, we, we should just move on. I can I can stop doing examples. So selflessness, this is what we're talking about, right? Actually, what we've the topic of the show is selflessness, but what we've been talking about is love, reaching out to the other, making more of the other than myself, giving my life up for the other. This is what we're talking about is love. So the antidote, if you struggle with uh, selfishness, which it's everybody. The antidote to that is growing in love, is growing in love. And that's why, I mean, you've heard this before, that, you know, the sin, the, the key here is not to think less of yourself. Selflessness is not about like some sort of fake humility where like, oh, I, yeah, I'm just, a, I'm just a lousy person and, you know, I'm just, I, I've been prideful, but I just need to remind myself that I'm no good. That's actually not true. But the key here is not to think less of yourself, but to think of yourself less to think of others more, to put others first, to have God at the center of our minds, to have our families and our friends at the center of our minds. That's the key to growing in selflessness is by growing in love. You just used the term humility, uh, and humility flies in the face of what most of us are engaged in doing, that's exalting ourselves. We're always looking for a way to elevate ourselves somehow, some way. The Apostle Peter writes in chapter 5 of his first letter, quote, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. So is humbling ourselves, humility, the same or similar to selflessness? I'm sure it's related to it. Selflessness is probably a smaller category. Oh, no, maybe it's, maybe it's related to it. Um, I haven't thought about that enough. But it's definitely connected. It will definitely take humility to put others first. You know, I've been in enough, I've been in enough meetings with people to know that to validate somebody else's viewpoint that might not agree with me, I'm going to need to sit on my viewpoint. If it's not important, if it's just me trying to get my way, I'm going to have to swallow, smile and 100% support this other person's viewpoint. That's a way to build them up and validate them and to move the group forward. That sort of selflessness takes humility because there's something in my head saying, this whole thing is not going to work out at all unless people do everything I want to happen, which circles us back to your comment earlier on this being the primal sin, self selfishness being the sort of the, the, the quest to be like God, the Messiah complex, if you will. Um, so yeah, humility is a part of that, but also again, can we bring in exaltation? Uh, that's its own sort of exaltation. There's a fake exaltation in which I get everybody in the meeting to do what I want them to do, and I can squash their plans and elevate my own. That's a self-exaltation that's going to end poorly. That, that group will not survive very long with that sort of leadership or sort of person sitting on the group. 
There's another sort of exaltation in which I support other people who have different ideas, and the group itself becomes exalted, and I, you know, my boat gets lifted on that rising tide. And on top of that, I get to be a part of this beautiful relationship where we love and support. See, so yeah, I, I do like that. Humility and exaltation can be a, a, another angle on this as well. So if I was correct in my earlier um, appeal to the fact what I think is a fact that our society has devolved into greater and greater selfishness. I'm wondering, is there any way to curb that trend or even reverse that deterioration apart from the word of God? I think it's going to have to be the gospel. I don't know at this point. Um, I mean, are we hopelessly selfish, you know, with take away the word of God Take away the law, take away the gospel, and just process everything from a sort of civil righteousness perspective. Aren't we doomed to be the bad leader of that group that you just described and, and our group is destroyed? Yeah, well, there's two things there. You could be the bad leader of that group, or you could be the person that got squashed and sit there and be like, I hate this. That person's so mean. Why don't ever? Why don't people ever let me have my way? Which is just as selfish. These two things are both selfish. One's maybe more damaging, but the other on, on a broader scale. But one is definitely personally damaging, living with that sort of bitterness of like, woe is me. Nobody ever pays attention to me. That's also, it's its own brand of selfishness. Yeah, yeah I, I don't, especially, so when you asked that question, I was thinking in the culture, um, I, I do think we're trapped in this. And and I again, I think that this is something that postmodern philosophers and students of the Bible agree with. Luther called this, so since the fall, we've become incurvatus in se, which is Latin for turned in on ourselves. We've become so enmeshed in the prison of our own persons that it's almost impossible to think of other people as something different than props to our own existence, as appliances in our own kitchen, as extras in the movie that's about us, the main character. It's, this is, it's almost impossible to get out of this unless you can be liberated by the gospel, unless we can see for a fact that God himself, the greatest being at the, at the center of the universe, that God himself is selfless, He's a God who sacrifices himself for us. And if we can be filled up with that, it can empower us to be the same for others. But, but as long as we're not there, if we don't tap into that selflessness, capital S, selflessness and humility at the heart of the universe, we're just going to be like dogs fighting over scraps of food. There's no reason at all why we shouldn't fight for the food. If we don't, we'll starve to death. But if I know that I can give up status, I can give up position, I can let Angela choose what we're going to watch on Netflix tonight, I can let the kids decide where we're going to go to dinner tonight, I can let, I can let somebody else in the meeting have a say and get their way, and I can do that, and it's okay because God will exalt me in due time because he loves me, and he's going to give me... Um, He's going to give me taste of this love in the way that I'm giving way to Angela and my kids and my friends and the people on the committees and groups I sit on and my neighbors. If, I, if I'm convinced that God's got this and that he is going to give himself to me, I can be liberated to do this for others. But I think you're right, not until that point. If, outside of the gospel, we're in big trouble. In Paul's letter to Ephesus, he tells the Ephesians to, quote, put off your old self, 
which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. This is a grand and sweeping statement here. This comes down hard on the old self. There's there's no wiggle room there. And then by putting on the new self, it says that in doing that, if I'm reading this correctly, we approximate or approach the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness, which is what we talked about. That's what we all want. We want to be like God. Well, here's the path. Yes. Okay. You have the ball. I've read to you what the scripture says. Now you have the ball, but you have to put off the old self and you have to put on the new self. And I'm wondering, I don't even know where to start with that. I just kind of rather sit in my chair here and wait for God to, you know, just drop it on me. It's not what it says. I need to put off yes. and I need to put on. You have advice? It's definitely an act, it's definitely an active thing that we'll always have to fight against. And now the power, like I said, the power is the one true human, Jesus, who Philippians 2 says did not think being like God something to be grasped for, even though he was God. He did what Adam couldn't do. He refused to grasp. He did what I can't do, what I haven't done. He refused to grasp after Messiah-like control, even though he was the Messiah. He does this, and, and that that's the power for it. But but he, like you said, he doesn't just drop it, drop it on us. He calls us to participate in this. And he does all the work, but he calls us to actively put off the old self and put on the new self. And trust that he's working in us both to will and to do this good pleasure. But it's not bad. It sounds scary, but it's and it's scary for all of us. But the goal is not to lose ourselves. The goal is this new true self. Think of it like this. Some some hotshot middle school basketball player. He's had a lot of success at the local middle school. Uh, he started playing AAU ball and he's looking good. You know, he shows up to freshman basketball. And the coach there tries to tell him the 15 things he's doing wrong. He doesn't want to hear it. He knows what he's doing. He's a great basketball player. He scored 26 points a game in middle school basketball. And he doesn't need to be told what to do. Now, what, happened, what needs to happen with that kid is he needs to get broken down. He needs to realize that what the coach is trying to do is to put off this old self, which he thinks is good, but is not going to be successful in high school, and to put on this new self this basketball player that this coach has in mind when he looks at this kid and sees what can be done with him. The coach knows. The coach has the power to transmit this ability to the kid. The kid needs to be told, you got to be humble. You can't walk in here and act like you're in charge. You can't not listen. You're going to have to listen to the coach. You're going to have to be humble enough to put aside the way you've done things in the past and put on this new basketball player, which is going to average 22 points a game when you're a senior, if you'll trust the coach that he knows what he's doing. And that's what God is calling us to do. He's not calling us to give ourselves up. He's inviting us to a new, better self, to the way he designed us to be. There's a human inside there that's trapped in the prison of our own selfishness that Jesus died to redeem and liberate and transform. And he's inviting us. He's saying, this is possible. I can do this for you. Give up your old self and trust me for my way of making you a new human. 
One last quick question. Is the suffering and death of Jesus Christ the single most infinite expression of selflessness that we have in our experience? And if it is, how does that affect me putting off the old self and putting on the new self? It is because he gave up the most. It's not it's not selfless for me. Look, so so, so somebody asks me, I'm, I'm standing in line at the gas station, and somebody like reaches in their pockets and realizes they don't have the dollar, to, you know, to get the Twinkie that they want to get, and they turn around and say to me, "I'm I'm sorry, I don't know you, but like, can you help me out here? Do you have a dollar for this Twinkie? I just realized I don't have any cash on me. It's not really selfless for me to give them a dollar. It is kind of, it's a dollar, but it, it's it's not really selfless. If somebody came to me and they said, like, I have massive medical debts. Can can you give me this amount? And it happens to be everything I have in my savings. That would be selfless. That would be a much greater act of selflessness. If I did that for that person, if I paid off all their medical debts, I would hope that their next door neighbor, Jesus tells a story like this in the Gospel of Luke, I would hope that their next door neighbor who owes them five bucks, who comes over later in the day and says, I don't have that five bucks. I would hope that this person that I paid off hundreds of thousands of dollars of medical debt to for would say to their neighbor, five bucks, it's fine. It's fine. That they would have in that process known that I've been given this vast amount of selflessness from somebody else. That means I've got selflessness to share. If they don't, it means they don't get it. They just don't get it. Now, if nobody's ever given them anything, if nobody's ever been selfless with them, if they've had to scrap and fight for everything their whole life, they are going to be like the dogs fighting over the scraps on the floor. And that's the, like we had discussed earlier, that's who we are. By nature, we're dogs fighting over the scraps on the floor. But if you can go to the person who is selfless enough to give you every cent he had, to give you every drop of blood that's flowing through his veins, he's given it all up for us that liberates us to be selfless enough to give the person in line in front of us at the, at the gas station a dollar. That should liberate me enough to say to Angela, whatever you want to do tonight is fine with me. It should liberate me in meetings to say to people, I support you 100%. I'm totally behind you, even when it's not what I really want to do. But I can't get to that point unless somebody's filled me first with their own self. That's what Jesus has done for us. It may be possible that a person can behave this way bow the knee to neighbor, certainly bow the knee to God, and find out that that's a pretty good feeling, that that's really has a not the negative effect that I thought it might have because I'd rather be selfish, but that I'm liberated from selfishness, and that alone feels pretty good. Yeah, that's uh, If you do it gospel, there's a way that you can do it outside of Jesus where it becomes a manipulation. I am kind to my neighbors because I want them to like me or maybe even more crassly because I'm going to need something later and I want them to return it. I'm not saying that's evil, but it's not what we're talking about here. It's That's not a truly giving up, giving up of self. It's trying to build up self by being kind or by investing, by, by giving gifts. What we're talking about here is the gospel-centered, Jesus-fueled selflessness that can only come through him. And that's our conversation today on selflessness. Thank you for listening to this edition of Craving Answers, Craving God. They say the best advertising for something is word of mouth. If by God's grace you derive some benefit from our show, please tell your friends about us. 
As you've probably discovered, we address a wide-ranging collection of topics. For Pastor Aaron Miller and our production manager, Larry O'Leary, I'm Chuck Rather.